0: on with our sessions on the Quran, Uh, even classical Muslim scholars themselves were aware of these difficulties and the obscurities of their sacred text that Dr. Puin had uh, just talked about in the last session. Muslim scholars who studied the meanings of words, such as Aban ibn Ta'hib, who died in 758, and Niftiwab from 859, have written documents called quote, the rare and strange expressions of the Quran. Muslim exegetes actually divide the words into four different types. The first is khas. These are words used in a special sense. Uh, there's am, secondly, collective or common words. Thirdly, there's mustarak, which these are complex words that have several meanings. Four, which is muwal these are words that have several meanings, all of which are possible and thus require a special explanation. Many of the sentences uh, in the Quran have grammatical errors. Uh, One modern scholar wrote articles on this very issue called Grammatical Errors in the Quran, Dr. John Burton. They're too complicated in order to discuss here, but it's important to understand that all this means is that the Arabic is not as perfect as it's claimed, and that the Quran is not as clear or as mubeen as the Quran uh, claims to be and as Muslims say it is. The sentences of the Quran are also divided into two different types. First, there are the zahir or obvious sentences. Uh, These are where the meanings are very obvious. Secondly is the, is the sentences that are khafi and uh, on sentences which are hidden and have hidden meanings. The Quran itself also admits that there are ambiguous passages uh, whose meaning is known only to Allah. In Surah 2, Ayah 7, it says, quote, "'It is he who has revealed unto you the book. Some of its verses are precise in meaning. They're the foundation of the book. Others are ambiguous.'" Those with an evil inclination in their heart seek after what is unclear in it, wishing to trouble people's minds and wishing to interpret it. But no one but Allah knows its interpretation. Thus, uh, those who are firmly rooted in knowledge say, we believe it, it's from our Lord, end quote. So even if the entire Quran was in Arabic, which it's not, we would still have a major challenges in reading it. But if we were to put this all aside, there's still a significant theological problem with saying that the Quran is the divine word of Allah, the divine word of God, written in a pure Arabic language. It's highly problematic to say that a divine eternal uh, God would communicate only in the Arabic language, only to the Arabic people. How could a God who's trying to communicate this universal message of salvation, communicate it in one language to a specific people group in Saudi Arabia and expect the whole rest of the world to believe on it. Now, I want to move to inimitability claim number four for Ijaz al-Quran, the miraculous nature of the Quran, and here's the fourth claim that Muslims make about the Quran. Many will say the Quran uh, is holy because of its universal message and its teachings in the book. But the question is, in the Quranic message, is it actually applicable for the 20th and 21st century? Do its teachings make sense uh, in our day? And I wanna show you you some of the issues you you can raise with your Muslim friends that show that the Quran is just not applicable to the 20th century. And these are various areas you can look at. And of course, we've already covered the biography of Muhammad, so you're very familiar with the Sunnah of the Prophet and those issues that are related in there. But within the Quran, first, there's the issue of the inferiority of the women. Secondly, is the use of the sword or the violence verses within the Quran. And third are the scientific errors that are in the Quran. The inferiority of women is a contemporary issue that many have been concerned about in Muslim nations. Though we see that there are violations uh, of human rights and women's rights and so on, uh, are these actually grounded in scripture? What does the Quran actually say about women? Uh, well, according to the Quran, they have only half the inheritance of that of a man. You can find that in Surah 4, I 11, and verse 176. In Surah 4, I 11, to the male a portion, uh, a portion equal to that of two females. Secondly, uh, women can be punished and they can be beaten by their husbands if they displease them. You can find that verse in Surah 4, Ayah 34. It reads, quote, If you men fear rebellion, admonish your wives, and banish, to them, banish them to their beds apart, and scourge them, beat them, End quote. When it comes to divorce or even uh, Marriage, women cannot have more than one husband, but a man can have four wives at one time. According to Surah 4, Ayah 3, it reads, quote, marry of the women who seem good to you, two, three, or four, unquote. So three or four are allowed for Muslim men, but Muhammad actually had divine permission from Allah to marry 11 or more wives and to have concubines and slaves and so on, that he had sex with and so on. So in this surah, in surah 32, ayah 50, uh, it it says that most men may actually marry four wives. Muhammad had divine permission to marry as many as he'd like. Surah 33, ayah 50, it explains, quote, O prophet! Verily we have made lawful to you your wives, to whom you have paid their mar or their bridal money given to their husband, uh, to his wife at the time of marriage, and those captives or slaves whom your right hand possesses, whom Allah has given to you, and the daughters of your paternal uncles, and the daughters of your paternal aunts, and the daughters of your paternal uncles, and the daughters of your maternal aunts, who migrated from Mecca with you and a believing woman, if she offers herself to the prophet, and the prophet wishes to marry her, a privilege for you only, not for the rest of the believers. So that was specially for Muhammad. Muhammad can marry his uh, cousin, believing women, slaves, basically anyone who is believing and whom he can pay to marry them. But this is not allowed to the other Muslim believers. Also, the Youngest and the favorite of Muhammad's wives was uh, a a girl by the name of Aisha. Now, she was uh, six years old, all the way up to nine years old, uh, when, uh, it says according to the traditions, both in Sahih al-Bukhari, in the Ibn Hisham, and all the early texts mention Aisha at that young age. But Muhammad was uh, 50 years old, and he actually married her, had sex with with her when when he was 52 years old. Now, this would be illegal in all countries today who uphold women's human rights, but it's, uh, it's okay within Islam. Now, another issue is the veil. In Surah 33, Ayah 59, uh, all women are commanded to wear the, the veil, the hijab, the head covering, the uh, burqa, and so on. It says, quote, O prophet, tell your wives and your daughters and women of the believers, to draw their cloaks, their veils all over their bodies, screen themselves completely, except the eyes or one eye to see the way, depending how you interpret that, but that that will be better, that they should be known as free, respectable women so as not to be annoyed, end quote. Women are told to cover for the sake of men. They believe that men have uncontrolled sexuality in Islam, so the veil is a way to actually control Men's desires. Uh, commentators have said that Muhammad is saying that when a man sees an unveiled woman, uh, woman, he desires to possess her. He cannot be trusted with her, so the woman is responsible for covering herself. It's not the man's responsibility, as uh, it talks about in the Gospels, but it's the woman's responsibility. In Surah two, ayah two thirty. A man may divorce his wife simply by uttering the phrase that he divorces her three times saying, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And that provides no kind of protection for women. Also, she has no security in her marriage relationship. So clearly these verses did not communicate universally in the 21st century. Many countries around the world have adopted human rights standards for women, making them equal to men in their freedoms. Domestic abuse where a, a husband beats his wife is illegal and women are not uh, held responsible for the sexuality and immorality of men. Many people around the world today would not find these scriptures about women uh, universal. So uh, these are some of the issues that we can look at. Now a second issue in the universality of the Quran is it's a view on peace and nonviolence. There's an enormous amount of violence. You can see in the Quran, we already covered the 84 different battles and so on that the prophet and his men were involved in, in the biography. But this is a very important issue, especially in our world today. One of the main teachings of Islam is called the jihad, and this word means fighting with religious significance, martyrdom, and the concept of theology of martyrdom, in dying in the way of Allah. It also contributes to this kind of concept of Violence in Islam. Now, Muslims will respond to the question, What about violence in the Quran? And this is what they'll say. They'll turn to certain verses like Surah 2, Ayah 256, and read, quote, Let there be no compulsion in religion. Truth stands out clear from error. End quote. And they say, This is the verse you need to be looking at. This is not the verse you need to see. Not all these sword verses, fight them slay the pagans where you find them, besiege them, behead them, lay in wait with them all kinds of ambush, cut the hands off the left, the right. No, not those verses. Look at this verse where there's no compulsion in religion. So many uh, liberal Muslims or modern Muslims will try and bring forth these kinds of, quote, peaceable or peaceful verses from the Quran. And they'll say, that in fact, there are two jihads. Uh, the lesser jihad is Fighting in battles and warfare and killing and so on, and that's what Muhammad and his early companions, the Sahaba, the Mujahideen fighters, what they did. But today Muslims are fighting the greater Jihad, and this is a spiritual battle, which goes on within the believer as they strive to follow Allah, kind of cleanse himself within. And it's interesting that the only tradition that we know about. Uh, in terms of any greater jihad is the tradition which is considered totally unreliable by uh, uh, one of the uh, compilations in Tirmidhi. There are hundreds, literally hundreds of hadith collections which emphasize the quote-unquote so uh, quote lesser jihad in the fighting and the sword-wielding in the battles and so on. So there's virtually no evidence to support this greater jihad as a spiritual battle within and that the massive amount of evidence that exists within the Hadith and the 149 sword verses are all the theological traditions supporting this concept of violent jihad and fighting in warfare. We can see this backed up by the teachings of the Quran. Of course, we must look at Surah 9.5, the sword verse. that's famous for replacing so many hundreds of verses. Uh, it says, fight against those who believe not in Allah. The distinction we must know is that this is an abrogating verse, and as we mentioned earlier, it cancels out many, many of these peace verses, uh, being about there's no compulsion in religion. and It actually cancels out those verses according to the traditionists. And that's why it's so important to know which verses replace what verses. So this verse, fight in the way of God, actually replaces the peace verse in that sense. Uh, So this is a cause of major a major cause of uh, of problems in the world, Uh, Muslims who claim that Islam is a religion of peace, they have to go and find some scriptures, and they have to deal with all these hundreds of sword verses, like Surah 47, ayah 4. When you meet those who disbelieve, strike off their necks and take them as captives. Surah 9.5, kill the idolaters, kithal, wherever you find them, capture and besiege them, lie in wait for them with stratagem of war. Surah 8, Ayah 39, fight them until there's no more fitna or worshipping of other, uh, others besides Allah. Surah 8, Ayah 65, O oh Prophet, urge the believers to fight. Surah 9, Ayah 20 through 22, those who believed and fought in Allah's cause with their lives, they are the, the successful. Their Lord gives them gardens they're, where they're, they're, wherein there are everlasting delights. So this is speaking of the huris and the rewards of of martyrdom and so on. In Surah 2, Ayah 2, 16, jihad is ordained for you, Muslims, though you dislike it. Now, is this a standard by which we want society to live in the 21st century? Is this the world standard? Is, it, is, this the, is this Allah's standard? At times, Muslims, especially in the West, will turn the question around and ask, well, there is violence in Islam, but there's violence in all religions, in Christianity, too. And the Muslims conquered, and the European Christians had the Crusades. But let's, let's compare the Christian Crusades to the jihad of the Muslims. The Crusades lasted 200 years. Jihad went on for more than 1,300 years. The Crusades are criticized as being imperialism, which I believe is wrong. But imperialism began with Muhammad in jihad expeditions for more than 500 years before the Crusades. The Crusades began as an, ef- as an effort to recapture from Muslim lands, which were once occupied by Christian jihad. Uh, it began with the intent to take uh, land never actually occupied by Muslims by establishing the Ummah or the Islamic community on earth. Ultimately, the Crusades were not the result of Jesus Christ's teachings, which is the main point. And there were not Christian Crusades, because Jesus never said to Go out and teach violence against those who refused his message, nor did he live that way. He said that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. He is our Prince of Peace. Muhammad not only preached violence, violence against non believers, but he set an example through his own life. Is the Quran's teaching on violence as it shows uh, the miraculous universal message of the book? I don't think so. I can confidently disagree with that claim. Now I want to turn to science in the Quran. We've looked at women, we've looked at violence in the Quran, we've looked at it for its universal application, uh, for its miraculousness and uh, inimitable nature uh, through these criterions. Let's look at something that's a little more lighthearted. Muslim apologists make great efforts to find indications in modern scientific knowledge in the Quran. They will claim that Modern science in the Quran is a miraculous proof of its divine origin. It's not wrong to claim that a book is uh, divine if it explains scientific thought discovered centuries later. But if we examine the science of the Quran, we may not find it to be as miraculous as our Muslim friends suggest. First off, the Quran talks about mountains in Surah 88, Ayah 17, and verse 19. We're told that mountains are placed like tent pegs on the earth. Now, if you know what a tent peg does, it it keeps the tent stable, it roots it down into the ground. So the idea is that the mountain will serve as tent pegs which keeps the earth from actually shaking. Elsewhere in the Quran, uh, they are described as anchors to a ship and the mountains weigh down or uh, anchor the earth to keep it from shaking. But anyone who has a knowledge of plate tectonics would know that this is in fact false. All the land on the earth is actually divided into plates. And these, uh, if you look at plate tectonics, uh, these are areas are on the earth in which these plates actually collide. And when they buckle, they wrinkle, and they slide over each other. When these plates of land hit each other, they start forming mountain ranges. And now an example of this kind of mountain range is can be found in the Middle East. In Arabia, uh, has mi- uh, they've had migrated towards Iran, uh, different mountain ranges called the Zagros Range, uh, and it has formed there. And so earthquakes actually form mountains. The mountains do not actually prevent the earthquakes. They're not tent pegs. They're actually created from the shaking. So this is not a scientifically accurate uh, prediction at all. It actually proves that the Quran is false on that point. Secondly is meteorites. There are times uh, when we'll see the, these amazing lights traveling through the sky. Some may call them falling stars or shooting stars. Scientists call them meteorites. The Quran provides an explanation for these meteors in the sky. In Surah 67, I 5, it reads, quote, And we have designed the lamps as a means of stoning the devils, end quote. So you see, the jinn, or little devils, try to sneak up and try to hear what the heavenly council are discussing. And in Surah uh, 72, I 8 through 9, a jinn is speaking and says, And we pried into heaven, and we found it full of strong guards and meteors, and we used to sit near it, perched for hearing. But he who listens now will find a flaming fire in wait for him. End quote. So according to the Quran, Allah throws meteors at the jinn. Well, what are we supposed to understand about this? Are we supposed to understand from this that God throws meteors? Now, meteors are made of carbon dioxide or iron nickel. Uh, So God throws these physical elements at non-material, disembodied, non-material devils. And what are we supposed to understand when the meteors come in showers? Are they traveling in parallel paths? Are the devils all lined up in one after another in the same moment and uh, to receive their punishment? No, clearly this, this isn't the case. Now, uh, the, thirdly, the, the Quran also speaks about procreation. Procreation. Uh, in the early Meccan Surahs, we find that procreation is talked about where uh, It says in Surah 86, Ayah 57, Now let man think from what he has created. He is created from a gushing fluid that issues from between the loins and the ribs. So here we find that man is made from a gushing fluid that issues from the adult father during the reproductive act. It flows from a specific physical place, which is between the loins and the ribs. Other translations of the Quran say that the fluid flows from the backbone area instead of the loins. So since the term loins is being used in conjunction with gushing fluid and ribs, we are left with this real problem. Here the Quran is saying that the semen is actually coming from the backbone or the kidney area of the man and not from the testicles. And this is biologically incorrect. Also, fourthly, uh, the biological formation of the fetus is also explained. Um, the Arabic word alaka yalaka is it used five different times in the Quranic verses. Uh, Alakyalaka indicates as a uh, is indicated as a, a stage in the development of the fetus. It's translated uh, by the word as clot clot. So in almost every Quran in the early Meccan surahs of surah 75, ayah 37 through 39, we read, quote, Was he man, not a drop of sperm ejaculated? Then he became Alika yalaka, a clot, and Allah shaped and formed and made of him a pair, the male and the female. In uh, surah 40, ayah 67, it says, quote, he it is who created you from the dust, then from a sperm drop from a, a leech like clot yalaka, and then brings you forth as a child, then makes you arrive at full strength, then you become old men, though uh, of you, some of you die before, and lets your, uh, your reach your po- appointed time uh, that perhaps you may understand End quote. A few more facts is in Surah 22, I.F. 5, which reads, quote, O mankind, if you have doubt about the resurrection, consider that we have created you from the dust and from a drop of seed, then from a clot, alaka yalaka, then from a little lump of flesh, shapely and shapeless, that we may make clear to you, and we store in the wombs as we wish for an appointed time. When we bring you out children, then you attain your strength, and among you is he who dies, and among you is he who is brought back to the most abject time of life, so that after knowledge he knows not, quote. And finally, in Surah 23, verse 12 through 14, it says very clearly, verily we created man from a product of wet earth. Then placed him as a drop of seed in a safe lodging. When we fashioned the drop, a clot, alaka yalaka, and of the clot, alaka yalaka, we fashioned a lump, and of the lump, we fashioned the bones, and we clothed the bones with meat. Okay. Then we produced it as another creation. Now, anyone who has studied the human reproduction will realize there is no stage as a clot. Uh, during the formation of a fetus. This is a very major scientific problem. These verses say that the clot of blood become bones, and then the bones, after that, are covered with muscles. The same idea is repeated in Surah 2, 259, where it says, quote, Look further at the bones, how we bring them together and clothe them with flesh. Now these verses give the impression that first the skeleton is formed first, and then is clothed with flesh. This is not the case. In fact, the fetus fetus forms in the the actual reverse order. The muscles and the cartilage form at the same time before the skeleton begins to form. Dr. T.W. Sadler is the author of Langman's Medical Embryology, uh, this book discusses the anatomy of a fetus as it grows. And he states, quote, at the eighth week post-fertilization, the ribs would be cartilaginous and muscles would be present, end quote. Also at this time, ossification, which is the natural process of bone formation, would begin near the, uh, the angle of the rib and would spread along the shaft until it reached the coastal cartilage by the fourth month. Muscles would be capable of some movement at eight weeks, but by 10 to 12 weeks, this capacity would be much better developed, end quote. Thus, muscles are there several weeks before there are calcified bones, rather than being added around previously formed bones. On this scientific fact, the Quran is wrong. Fifthly, another matter that the Quran discusses is the creation of the earth. There are seven... References which speak of God creating the heavens and the earth in six days Surah 7, Ayah 54, Surah 10, Ayah 3, Surah 11, Ayah 7, Surah 25, Ayah 59, Surah 32, Ayah 4, Surah 50, Ayah 38, and Surah 57, Ayah 4. Now these verses all basically say the same thing Surah 10, Ayah 3 says. It reads, quote, Indeed, your Lord is Allah who created the heavens and the earth in six days, and He, ma- he mounted on the throne directing all things. There's no intercessor, except after his permission. That is Allah, your Lord, so worship him, End quote. Now that all sounds very straightforward. The earth was created in six days by Allah, who was on the throne. But Surah 41, Ayah 9 through 12 reads, say, do you deny him who created the earth in two days? And do you join equals to him? He is the Lord of the worlds, and he placed therein firm hills, rising above it blessed it and measured therein its nourishment in four days according to those in need of those who ask for food and then he he turned equally to the heaven when it was smoke and said unto it and unto the earth quote come together willingly or unwillingly they both said we come obediently and he completed them seven heavens in two days and inspired in each heavens its command and we adorned the lower heaven with lamps and rendered it guarded That is the decree of the mighty, the knower, end quote. So let's use some basic mathematics here. It says that Allah made the earth in two days. Add that to the nourishment he created for creation in four days. Two plus four is six And after the six days, uh, mountains were formed and presumably plants and animals. Then God made the seven heavens and this took two more days. So six plus two days is a total of eight days. The earth was created in eight days according to this verse. So now we have a contradiction. The Quran says seven times that that Allah created the world in six days, while here it says eight days. So what does one do? These are not easy questions for Muslims to answer. And Muslims will raise these kinds of polemics against the Bible often in these kinds of questions, but they won't look at the some 50 to 100 different contradictions that are in the Quran, and you can find these in your course pack. So these are not easy questions for the Muslims, nor are any of these. Now, we turn to the contents of the Quran, and the question must be asked, if this is not the divine revelation of God, then where does the Quran, where does it actually come from? And this question is particularly interesting when we look at the narratives of the prophets. Remember, we learned earlier that many of the characters in the Quran are familiar to us as Christians, but their stories may not be so familiar to us, so let's walk through some of them. The story of Abraham in Surah 21, Ayah 51 through 71. We find the story of Abraham and in the Quranic account, Abraham confronts his people and his father because of the many idols they're worshiping. After an argument between Abraham and the people, they leave Abraham and the people, um, Abraham breaks the smaller idols and leaves the larger ones intact. When the people see this, they call Abraham and ask him if he's responsible for these broken idols. Making fun of Abraham, uh, responds that the larger idols must have broken the smaller ones, and they reply, "You know full well that these idols do not speak." They say, and Abraham makes fun of them again. So the idol worshippers throw him into a fire. But in Surah 21, in verse 69, Allah intervenes. He commands the fire to be cool, making it safe for Abraham. And Abraham walks out miraculously unharmed. Now, there's no parallels to that story in our Bible. But there is parallels to find, found in the Jewish tra- traditions called the Midrash Rabbah. If this is God's eternal word, then why do we find Jewish folklore found in the Quran? Another story is the story of Cain and Abel. The story is found in Surah 5, I 30 through 32. It begins much like it does in the biblical, biblical account of Cain and Abel. We find Cain killing his brother Abel, and their names are not revealed in the Quran. But it's largely believed that the story of the two brothers refers to Cain and Abel. So one brother kills the other brother, and, uh, and in verse 31, the story changes and no longer follows the biblical account. We read in verse 31, quote, then Allah sent a raven who scratched in the ground to show him how to hide the shame of his brother. Woe is me, said he, was they not even able to be as this raven and to hide the shame of my brother. Then he became full of regrets. In verse 32, we read, quote, that whoever slays a soul, it is as though he had slayed all men, and whoever keeps it alive is as though he kept alive all men. So a raven comes, he scratches in the ground, and he shows Cain where and how to bury his brother Abel. Now, where could this chronic account actually come from? We find the exact same stories found in three Jewish traditions. Uh, scholars have found this, historical scholars, and the targith, Targum of Jonathan Ben Uzziah, the Targum of Jerusalem, and the Perke Rabbi Eliezer. The exact same apocryphal stories that are found in the Quran. Christian, basically, forgeries, Jewish for- forgeries of these stories and commentaries that end up finding themselves in port within the text of the Quran, not from God, but from Jewish. Uh, forgeries. Now another story is that of Solomon and Sheba and uh, it's one of the the most amusing stories in the Quran Uh, Solomon uh, uh, and Sheba in Surah 27 IAS 17 through 44 we find that the story of the Hoopa bird and the Queen of Sheba. In this story Solomon had a bird called the Hoopa bird and this Hoopa bird would go help him fight in battles he'd use them in warfare his birds in warfare They would carry stones in their claws and they would fly up over the the heads of Solomon's enemies and drop them on their heads and and kill them and so on. So one day, Solomon is looking for his hooper bird. Where is his hooper bird? We can't find it? Well, it turns out that the hooper bird had just flown down to the south and there the bird saw this most beautiful queen, Queen of Sheba. Now he returns and says, well, I have to tell Solomon about this queen she's a beautiful queen i must tell her about it tell him about it and so he flies back up and tells solomon so solomon sends uh, for uh, the queen of sheba an invitation to actually come visit him so he receives the invitation and talks to her advisors they all confer with her and say well you know solomon's a very powerful king and he's a very rich king and so you have to go speak with them and it would be wise to go visit so sheba she gets in her caravan and travels north to King Solomon's palace. Once she arrives at this palace, she goes through the doors into the main hall. And in there, she sees there's a mirrored floor on the, on the ground. But when the queen of Sheba, she thinks it's actually water. So she thinks it, thinking it's water. She lifts up her skirt, but she has hairy legs. Solomon comes walking in the door and he cries out and goes, ah! Now that's a great story, but is that in your Bible? It's not in my Bible. Where do these stories come from? We can find the exact same stories found in the Jewish apocryphal story of the second Targum of Esther. Now, what are these apocryphal books? It's a book that is not included in the Old Testament, and it's not in the New Testament. This is because, though it speaks about biblical characters, its authenticity was questioned. Apocryphal books usually involve fictitious or legendary accounts, which could be considered truth, but they're not. Oftentimes, it's not even clear who the author is, and it's written uh, much later than the Bible, uh, these stories, so that it isn't the first century books. So a story from apocryphal books are found in the Quran. Now, Saint Tis- uh, 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 William St. Clair Tisdall was one of the earliest Christian missionaries to Muslims to use this method of explaining the sources of the Quran, where the Quran actually came from, from all these Jewish and Christian and apocryphal legends that were before the 7th century, before Muhammad's life, but find import into the Quran. And he used them as an evangelistic tool. In 1901, he wrote a book called The Sources of Islam. And you can find that book online. In this book, he sought to prove that the Quran had borrowed from many different sources, including apocryphal Christian writings. One such text is the Arabic gospel of the infancy, a forgery. Now, St. Clair Tisdall thought that the apocryphal book of the Arabic gospel of the infancy was behind these accounts, not divine revelations from Allah. And other scholars agreed with St. Clair Tisdall they considered that this Arabic gospel of the infancy should be dated to the 5th century or earlier. Now, a book that's written 400 years after the time of Jesus should not have new information about his infancy. Can we agree on that? And why is a Quran that's supposed to be Allah's word have stories from a book that, that scholars know is not reliable history? It wasn't close to the event. What we wanna ask is, how does this infancy gospel look as a middle term between the Christian writings of the Bible, the Old and New Testament of the first few centuries and the Quran of the seventh century? How does it look as a middle term? Well, in the earliest period of Christianity, it was Jesus' death and resurrection that were a primary interest to his followers. Then they cared about Jesus's works and his words in the gospels. But soon, a desire grew to go even further back into Jesus's life. So Matthew and Luke independently began to gather witnesses, witnesses and accounts and traditions about Jesus's birth. But the curiosity of some early Christians were not satisfied, satisfied by Matthew and Luke. They wanted to know more about Jesus' childhood. So in the mid-2nd century, a new genre of writings emerged. Authors that wanted to provide uh, fictitious stories about his birth. And these new genres were called the infancy gospels. The authors of these works often drew from legendary material, fictitious material, false materials, to create fantastic stories. They would write extensive details of the history of Joseph and and of Jesus' birth and childhood. Along with curiosity came another motive, which was apologetic, as Christians sought to respond to Jewish and pagan polemic against Christianity and, the, and to demonstrate especially the chastity of Mary. From its second century beginnings, the genre rapidly expanded, reaching its peak in the Middle Ages in the 5th to the, to the 15th centuries. And uh, old works were recompiled and new stories were rewritten. Often the authors would borrow extensively from the biblical gospels to disguise them as real biblical stories. But how did the apocryphal infancy gospels ultimately influence the Quran? Well, Jewish and Christian communities existed in Arabia. Before the 6th century and as they moved in, they brought these stories with them. Most of these stories would be told by storytellers, the kusas or whatever, in oral form. And at that time, Arabia was an oral culture. And this means social interaction involved story swapping, telling stories, sitting around and telling the stories as entertainment for the day. As the Jews and Christians interacted with the Arabs, uh, religious traditions began to spread through word of mouth. Some of these stories were adapted into Arabic understanding. Uh, An example of this, as we shall see, is the apocryphal infancy gospel of Thomas. By the time of the Quran's uh, composition, many Jewish and Christian traditions were well-established. This explains why there are many chronic references to biblical stories. So there's a a connection between the tales in the Quran and outside the non-Islamic sources. Scholars call this relationship between uh, people who are uh, 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 using oral tradition or passing on stories and the actual written text, it's called intertextuality, the relationship between oral tradition and written text. We see the influence of the infancy gospel of Thomas in the Quranic narratives of the childhood of Jesus. Strangely, the Quran says very little about Jesus' teaching and his ministry but in comparison, it contains uh, large amounts about his infancy material. Since we know the apocryphal writings were in widespread use amongst Eastern Christians, it seems that they greatly influenced the formation of Jesus' stories in the Quran. For example, in Surah 5, I-113, and in Surah 19, describe how Jesus spoke in the cradle. In the 5th century infancy gospel of Thomas, jesus comes out of the womb of mary and as an infant a baby and says this quote i am the son of god that's in the fifth century infancy gospel of thomas he says i am the son of god but when you get to the seventh century with muhammad uh, you go to the quran you find a similar story with a twist instead of the newborn jesus saying i am the son of god in the fifth century we find Isa al masi Jesus the Messiah, in the Quran saying, I am the servant of Allah. Well, Jesus was a Jew. He wouldn't come out speaking Islamic theology. But in the Quran, he does, and he's Islamicized. He's made a Muslim, basically, saying, I'm the servant of Allah. And the story is very similar to the infancy gospel of Thomas with that twist, taking out son of God and saying he's the servant of Allah. Since the infancy gospel was written before the Quran, it makes sense. And because of the similarity, we would say that this story is in an intertextual relationship with the infancy gospel of Thomas. There's also another story mentioned in the Quran. In Surah 3, Ayah 49, there is an incident where, as a young boy, Jesus makes these birds out of clay. Then he brings them to life, and that's a great story, (laughs) again, but it's nowhere found in our Bibles. The exact same story is found in the infancy gospel of Thomas. In both texts, there are two stages in the story. Birds are made, and they are brought to life. When you read the Quran, you may have noticed that there are uh, very Christian, what we call Christological terms, Christological terms referring to Jesus. In two places, Jesus is described as having the same nature, the same nature as humanity in Surah 18, Ayah 12, and Surah 30, Ayah 7. Now, as Christians, we believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It's interesting to note that the discussion of Christ's nature arose during the Christological controversies of the fourth and the fifth centuries. And the Quran uses similar language as those debates in the, apocry- the apocryphal materials. So this, this suggests that the author of the Quran was actually familiar with the language of Christian orthodoxy. And with these 5th century debates, of course, this all makes sense that the Quran was written in the 7th century. So scholars would call the infancy gospel of Thomas a middle term between the, the, the Bible... <clears throat> which is an earlier term, term, and the Quran, which would be a later term in the 7th century. The Bible from the 1st century, the uh, infancy Gospel of Thomas in the 5th century, and then the Quran in the 7th century. In the Quran, we do not find exact copies of the biblical characterization or the stories themselves. Instead, we find what resembles it through legends which were created and then adapted in the environment of the Quran. Oftentimes these stories in the Quran are used as a polemic or attack against Christians and Jews. For example, the Islamic scholar Ibn Kathir uh, records the tradition that Surah 3 was revealed when the Christians from Najran argued with Muhammad regarding Jesus's divinity. Uh, the adaptation of the middle term often reflects the social and theological debates of the time such as the deity of Christ. Just as the infancy gospel of Thomas is said to represent a snapshot of popular Christianity and Christian traditions about Jesus in the 5th century, we can say the very same about the Quran in the 7th century. It's like taking a picture of of who Jesus was in the 7th century or taking a picture in the 5th century so... It's like taking a picture of Jesus in the first century as the son of God. In conclusion, it's somewhat simplistic to say that the Quran has simply copied these books, uh, copied apocryphal writings, and simply put them into the Quran. Rather, there's a complex relationship that scholars recognize having to do with exchanging stories and swapping them with each other in the culture and then adapting these, story, these stories into a new context. In the end, uh, we see that the apocryphal writings and the Quran are deeply intertwined. And what this tells us is that these stories have an origin which is not from Allah or the angel Gabriel. Now, we spent this time doing an internal critique uh, of the Qur'an. We've looked uh, inside the pages of the Qur'an and came to some conclusions about what's written between the covers of the book. We analyzed what Muslims claim about their holy book and why we do not agree with their claims. And we've done the homework of theologians, uh, language scholars, uh, and scientists to assess the inimitability of the Qur'an. And we're going to move on with our next session to talk about an external critique of the Quran and deal with the archaeological, the manuscript, and the actual textual variations of the Quran itself in our next session. Thank you very much.